I would say this. Uh, if he's not there, we beat them two touchdowns. And I think if you watch that game, you'd agree. Uh, he was that good. Uh, he's that. He was that special. Uh, you know, very talented. Obviously, he can throw the ball, but he's just so hard to tackle. I mean, he's. Just, I mean, I don't know what he weighs exactly, but he looks like a linebacker, an NFL linebacker. That's what he looks like. Uh, and he was tough to handle. I think you know we threw everything we could there to try to get him down and do all those things, and, and he made a lot of plays for them. And so, very talented guy. He really makes their team, to be honest with you. And so, um, he's he's all the accolades he's getting, and, and he, it's deserving of by the way he plays. What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Lots to get to today with this solo early pod. Will is a bit under the weather and he's got a million and a half things to take care of for his day job today. He's less than 100%, so he's going to be back next week. The man that you just heard in the open right there talking about Malik Willis, my guy, that was Coastal Carolina coach Jamie Chadwell. Really, really enjoyed talking with him. Guy just kind of sounds like he belongs in the SEC. Maybe he will someday. We dug into his roots, the historic season he just had, and I got his perspective on the 12-team playoff stuff, all of that coming up later. Also going to talk haircuts in figuring it out. Your boy had a little situation recently, so I wanted to get into that. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by College Football Uncensored. Some of you might be listening to your first college football podcast this offseason right just now. I don't know. Maybe you're like a Tennessee fan or an LSU fan and you're trying to pretend like 2020 didn't happen. So now that you're getting back into all of your usual college football podcasts, by the way, thanks for listening to this one. Also, go subscribe to College Football Uncensored. It is the newest podcast from Saturday Down South. It's Marler, it's Tyler Huck, and they're talking about all things college football all year round. Last week, they did the best teams that didn't win a title but would have in the 12-team playoff. They've also done stuff like who they want to fight most in college football, and they react to all the big news going on. And hey, as I've said, no bleep button needed. They let it fly. Those guys have a ton of fun, so if you want to find a way to get through these off-season months without college football games, go subscribe to College Football Uncensored. I'm going to be honest, I don't do this, but I can make fun of the Pac-12 whenever I want. I can always do the cheap thing, make fun of the postseason stuff. Everyone knows one playoff victory, two playoff appearances in seven years, haven't been there since 2016, haven't won a national title in 17 years. Conference of Champions isn't the most appropriate conference tagline, but it is now the least appropriate conference tagline. I can always make fun of the TV network miscues. Those have been well documented. In 2019, the SEC Network and Big Ten Network had three to four times as many subscribers as the Pac-12 Network. Why? Because the SEC and Big Ten are like, hey, you know what would be really smart? Let's get 51% of the ownership to massive broadcast companies like Fox and ESPN. That way, we have incredible leverage for negotiating all future TV deals. The Pac-12 is like, nah fam, we got this. Brilliant, brilliant move by Larry Scott. The Mercury News reported in 2019 that the Pac-12 Network, which was launched in 2012, so, you know, had enough time, entering its 10th season now, it, it, in 2019, it had fewer subscribers than, get this, the Pursuit Channel, the Sportsman Channel, Fox Deportes, and Z Living. I'm not sure what any of those are. Z Living, I'm going to assume, is maybe just like a Gen Z thing where it's a TV channel that shows TikToks all day. I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. The fact that Pac-12 games are also treated by the masses as like a late Saturday night version of Maction, that's just sad. It really is. Speaking of Larry Scott, the outgoing Pac-12 commissioner, I can make fun of him on most days too. And not just because he was the Big Ten's lapdog this past year. I said last week, it's okay to be a beta. Sometimes. 
When your commissioner is powerless with a monumental decision to cancel football because he's the Big Ten's lapdog and he doesn't have an original thought, I'd say that's a really bad time to be a beta. People forget, dude was making $5 million in 2019 and he was the highest paid commissioner in sports. Well, at least at the college level. Why? Because he doubled as a media executive. Media executive is very much in air quotes. You can't see me doing that, but trust me, I am doing that. Ironic, I realize. Most commissioners don't bow out a year before their deal is done. But that's what Larry Scott did, or rather, he was forced to do. His last day as commissioner is coming up here on June 30th. I bet ever since that announcement back in January that he was going to be done at the end of the school year that some folks out west have just been marking off the days on the calendar until that finally happens. You know you're terrible at your job if your last day is being counted down like it's everyone's 21st birthday. But before Scott fades into the abyss, he had to get this one last eye roll comment in. And when I say eye roll comment, I mean all of us are collectively rolling our eyes at Larry Scott in the Pac-12. That brings us to the reason why I picked today, of all days, to make fun of the Pac-12. On Friday, Larry Scott released a statement on the 12-team playoff. Basically, he still wants the possibility of automatic bids for Power 5 conferences. Here's what the statement said in case you missed it. The Pac-12 supports expansion of the CFP and believes that the Autonomy 5 champions should annually qualify for the CFP. We greatly appreciate the work of the CFP subcommittee as we as the thoughtful and productive discussions amongst the blah, 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 blah. If that statement came out a few months ago, I'd be like, yep, that's exactly what I'd expect Larry Scott to do. If my league repeatedly showed it couldn't produce an elite team like the Pac-12, I too would voice those concerns and I'd say, yeah, I'd love to be able to have an automatic bid. That'd be great. But that's not the case anymore. Remember, under this new proposed 12-team playoff format, the 12-team playoff would take the six highest ranked conference champs. I already did the exercise last week with 2001 LSU and showed you how even a borderline top 25 team winning the league should theoretically be able to get in. And now here's Larry Scott saying, hey, this new system isn't good enough. Even though this system has three times as many teams in as the four-team playoff. And Larry Scott is clearly still worried about this. He's like, oh crap, we actually would have been left out last year. What a bad look that would have been for us in the Pac-12 to have zero teams in a 12-team field while the group of five would have had two. Man, are you kidding me? The nerve of this guy. What an awful, weak look this is for the Pac-12. You know why you would have been left out last year? Because you were at the mercy of the Big Ten. You had zero spine or leg to stand on. And when you realized that everyone else was still going to be playing football, you decided too late that you didn't want to miss out. As bad as the Pac-12 has been, though, in a normal year, it wouldn't get left out. Look at any of the results of the last decade. The Pac-12 wouldn't have been left out. Would not have been left out of a 12-team field. And if it doesn't qualify, you know what? You weren't good enough. Larry Scott is lucky that they're still calling it a power five. Because in my opinion, I don't know, core four, I think that kind of sounds better. It's probably more fitting too. Larry Scott wants his Pac-12 champ to have the same exact seat at the table as the rest of the power five leagues. You know the game that they play in Santa Clara at 5 p.m. local time on a Friday and they basically treat it like it's Toby's birthday party? I know, they played in LA last year, they're moving to Vegas this year. The winner of that game finished in the top 10 once in the last four years. Speaking of the last four years, it's unfair to do the Pac-12 playoff numbers in that stretch. As you know, they're non-existent. Here's the thing, though. The Pac-12 has had as much playoff representation as the Mountain West. The last four years in New Year's Six Bowl games, the Pac-12 is 1-4. Shout out to Justin Herbert, who was able to hold off Wisconsin to get that lone New Year's Six Bowl victory for the Pac-12 in the last four years. It's a small sample size in terms of total teams, yeah, but that's what happens when your conference stinks. Compare that to the rest of the Power Five. The ACC in New Year's Six Bowl games the last four years, 
went three and seven. The Big 12 went three and four. The Big 10 went six and four. And the SEC, oh, by the way, went 14 and, f 14 and five, excuse me. But sure, tell me that the Pac-12 totally deserves to have the same automatic qualifier as the SEC and the rest of the Power Five. Hey, let's just compare that to the AAC during that stretch. The AAC, not the ACC, the AAC went one and three in New Year's Six Bowls. Basically the same as the Pac-12. Larry Scott has no idea what optics are. And the fact that he's like, hey, six highest ranked conference champs isn't good enough. And he felt compelled to release a statement. That shows that this guy doesn't understand how unbelievably weak of a look that is when you're basically worried about two group of five champs getting in over your champ. The SEC is out here like, hey, we're gonna embrace this because we think we can get four teams into a 12 team field. The Pac-12 finally gets a get out of jail free card from the warden. And instead of just being able to raise its arms up knowing that it should be able to finally break out of this prison, it tells the warden, hey, do me a favor. Make sure there's a stretch limo just like waiting outside and uh, make sure that it's gonna take me to my mansion. This is college football. You don't get a mansion and a limo by cutting corners. Somebody should have uh, probably told that to Arizona State in case you missed it this past week. Arizona State is about to be in its own self-induced prison. Long story short, if you haven't read all the stories, Arizona State pretended that the recruiting dead period wasn't really a thing during COVID. Uh, remember that whole thing about the June 1st dead period uh, end and, and what a big deal that was and all these programs are opening the doors at midnight and all that stuff. And it's you know kind of a fun thing that everybody in college football is really doing. Um, Arizona State decided that pandemic, no, we don't care about that. Uh, even though the NCAA decided that it probably wasn't the best look to have recruits and their families on campus, Arizona State just blatantly said that doesn't apply to us. You read the stories that have come out and if you haven't, you should. It's an awful look for Herm Edwards. And it wasn't long ago that everyone was praising Herm and they were talking about how unique it was to have him in this hands-off CEO-like role. The part that didn't work, the hands-on guy was Antonio Pierce who uh, apparently created a mutiny within that staff because he wanted to blatantly cheat and host these recruits. The guy didn't even want to turn off the security cameras. So it looks like, yeah, the NCAA gonna hammer Arizona State. And everyone is left wondering why Arizona State was so bad and blatant about cheating when if you look at the recruiting class, it didn't exactly shake things up. Not that we should really be focused on that, but everyone pretty much came to the conclusion that because all of these allegations came from people with intimate knowledge of the program, that the NCAA has all the breadcrumbs it needs to hammer Arizona State and turn another Pac-12 school into a doormat. Quick side point here that I keep thinking about with this Arizona State stuff. I am so, so glad that this type of cheating didn't happen in the ICC. This type of cheating is what I mean. Can you picture the takes that would, that would have come out if this story was something like, Ole Miss ignores COVID and hosts illegal recruiting visits during dead period? You already know who would have had that column ready to go. You know the exact person. I roll my eyes thinking about all the generalizations people would make to fuel the narrative that nobody in the South gave a crap about the pandemic. That narrative would have been out in full force, but instead this looks like a random one-off that happened out West. Also, I, I wrote something the other day about how this would actually be a very un-SEC type of scandal because of the power dynamics. Herm Edwards turned the power over to Antonio Pierce and his attitude within the staff created this divide. Nobody though comes to the SEC to be a hands-off CEO coach like Herm. That's why dudes who have been away from coaching for 10 years and have three years of college coaching experience back in the 80s, they don't get opportunities at the Power Five level like that. Gruden was probably the closest thing to, to, to something like that happening in the SEC. And as much as there appeared to be this, this flirtation, of course, you know, there was this back and forth, he pretty much said from the jump, if you go back and look at the comments, nah, I don't really like the recruiting aspect of this, which is why I wouldn't be right for the college game. Herm Edwards clearly wasn't dialed in enough to see the bigger picture issues with having Pierce operate the way that he allegedly did. And now it looks like he'll face the consequences of that. In the end though, 
It was another demerit and an especially bad month for the Pac-12, which is saying something because again, usually the Pac-12's bad months, they're in the fall. I'd argue that Arizona State was the Pac-12's feel-good story for at least a minute there. Now the Pac-12 can't even have that. I don't know what the Pac-12 deserves these days. I know it sure as heck doesn't deserve some automatic playoff bid. Maybe the Pac-12 should just take its get-out-of-jail-free card and appreciate the chance to have a normal life. I should probably also mention, by the time that people are listening to this, I'll be enjoying a little time in California, driving down the coast. So in the .00001 chance I don't return for next week's pod, we'll know why. Let's go to my interview with Coastal Carolina coach Jamie Chadwell. He's a guy who burst onto the scene last year, National Coach of the Year, and I know he was rumored for some SEC openings as well, South Carolina, Tennessee. Got into a lot of stuff, including his thoughts on, again, playoff, and I'm pretty sure we broke some mullet news as well. So here is Jamie Chadwell. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest, a first-time guest. It is Coastal Carolina coach Jamie Chadwell. AP National Coach of the Year, Jamie Chadwell, might I add. Uh, Jamie, I, I know you and your staff are, are doing a lot of uh, recruiting stuff right now. I got to imagine after the historic year that y'all just had that you're probably seeing more people who properly know how to pronounce Chanticleers than ever before. Is that true? Or are you still having to sort of educate the masses on the proper pronunciation? No, it's, a, it's definitely been a, a lot easier this year. Uh, there's, there's not been near as many corrections, we'll say that. Uh, I don't even think our coaches could say it right before this year. Uh, and uh, now everybody's <laughs> sort of figured it out. It's, it's, the, the years helped us, really helped us open the door with, with recruiting uh, and just allowed us access to a lot, of, uh, a lot of different people that we maybe didn't have beforehand. So it's, been a, it's definitely been a blessing in that regards. How big of a challenge has it been for you to recalibrate? Because you guys really did burst onto the scene and have that dream season that I think everyone at the group of five level wants, you know, where you get to host college game day. But, you know, as we talked about a lot last year nationally with LSU coming off a national title, it's not so easy to be able to kind of get everybody fired up in the same sort of way again. The difference for you guys being that you have something like, I think I saw the Bill Connolly stat, I think it's 89% of last year's production back, which is a really, really good number, obviously. How important was it just to have that back to get you kind of through the grind of the spring? Well, I think that is a huge you know, benefit because you would, typically when you come off a season the way we did, you, you, know, you had a, a very uh, senior-laden team and, and, and you lose all of those guys, and so you're into almost like a reload type deal. Uh, and so having the benefit of having the, a lot of those players back um, one, there's still a hunger there to prove this year's not a fluke. And I think from our standpoint, too, is we want to do that as well as coaches because we did burst on the scene. And I think there's still questions out there. Hey, is this team for real long term? You know, are they a flash in the pan? And that's one thing you don't want to be. Uh, and having having the number of people, 20 of 22 starters back is what we've got back. You know, that's a that obviously gives you some comfort of knowing – we got guys that have been in the battles, but more than anything, there's some good, really good leaders there that I think will help uh, our young people. Who are young people that got here? They, they think that all, all we've been doing is winning, right? Because it was their first year; it's not been that hard for them. And just uh, showing them the way of how you have to do things uh, and where we were at before, obviously, this season broke out. In a in a weird COVID year, Coastal Carolina sort of became America's team, and I think. Part of that is just because America likes an underdog. You guys are picked to finish last in the league. Then you come out of nowhere with the unbeaten start, and it's this team full of dudes with mullets and the wild celebrations and all that stuff. Where you really became America's team, in my opinion, was the ability to pivot and schedule BYU midweek after Liberty had, had the COVID cases. I think college football fans loved it and loved you guys for doing it because it felt like one of those ideas that would be thrown out on, on Twitter or Reddit or something like that, but would never actually happen. How in the world did that happen and how did it happen so fast? Well, um, you know, the crazy thing about it, obviously game day was here, right? And, and first time ever in the history of the Sunbelt program. So, uh, you know, game day's here. And then, then we, start, we start realizing we're losing, you know, Liberty is uh, their quarterback's getting COVID. 
And so, you know, we kept start hearing rumblings that they're going to drop out. Uh, and uh, then we're practicing Wednesday still for Liberty, even though we've been hearing rumblings. And somebody asked me when I come off the field, hey, are you guys playing BYU? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and then they started talking a little bit about that. And then Thursday morning, maybe he said, hey, yeah, Liberty's out, BYU's in. It was like 9 a.m. on Thursday morning. Uh, and, I, I, you know, behind the scenes, I guess, through maybe through ESPN, through some through our people, their people, uh, obviously they wanted game day being here. They wanted game day to still be here and have a game to play. And it worked out that BYU was looking, and obviously we were willing to do it. Uh, and it, it threw together in probably 48 to, you know, 56, uh, 60 hours there was a game thrown together. Uh, and you're – what was crazy about the whole thing is, you know, you're already game planning the whole week. You get to Thursday, you're basically done. You're just tidying up that game plan. And we start scrambling Thursday and Friday uh, just to try to get ready for that game Saturday at 530. And, and the games at Saturday, we're still we're still game planning Saturday morning, trying to get everything ready. And then, you know, you're watching TV like most college coaches do, and you're watching game day, and, you're, and then you sit there and you just pinch yourself because game day's right outside. So it was just a surreal moment. How many hours did you sleep uh, Thursday, Thursday night and Friday night with with all that you had on your plate? You know what I, I can't remember. I know I know whether I slept or not. I, it, it was never a good sleep. You know, sometimes you you have a restful sleep, and I know we didn't have any restful sleep that whole week. Uh, you know, and the thing that we decided to do once we you know everything was solidified, we went back and said, all right, this team is you know BYU similar to this team, this team, and this team is at least from a scheme standpoint. And all we did was take previous game plans, put them together, and basically walk through them on Thursday and Friday and said, hey, this is what we're going to do and hope it's good enough. You know, because you didn't have enough time to put together the best of the things you could do. And we did our best to try to make it work. Uh, and obviously it ended up being a great game for us, but really just a great football game in general. You watched that game, obviously a lot of America did. Whether you were just a fan of college football, that was a great college football game. Came down to the last second. You had a Heisman Trophy, you know, candidate with their team. They're trying to go undefeated. We're on the we're on the scene. We're trying to do our thing. Uh, and uh, why you love college football, that game showed it. Is there any part of you that's like, hey, you know what? We we could do this again in theory if this situation were to present itself and. You know, hopefully we're not going to run into any future situations in which there could be a, a midweek cancellation or something like that. But you never know. I mean, hurricane season, stuff like this just can kind of happen. But I think you, you guys in so many ways provided the model that, hey, this can be done. And a team that if you had gotten blown out or something like that, I think it's a, it's a different story. But not only did you guys execute it with college game day and all the moving pieces there, but you guys came out with a really good game plan. Have you guys sat down and thought, you know what, if we're in this situation, we kind of just provided the blueprint for, for us and for other teams to be able to do this in the future? You know, I think you could. You know, we discussed it afterwards. Like, is there, is there a way that you could leave a week sort of everybody, sort of like the NCAA does in basketball, you know, you leave a week there maybe towards the end part of your season for for teams that are having a pretty good uh, year and you try to match up, you know, games like that. Uh, I think it's possible. You know, I wouldn't obviously recommend two days out, but, you know, on that Sunday, hey, BYU and Coast are getting together. This year it's at BYU, next year it's at Coast, vice versa, something of that nature. Uh, I think it's possible, you know, uh, exactly how you work that through with your conference schedules is that there's a is there an open date set in there i don't know exactly uh how that's working out but i do think now it becomes even more imperative probably with uh the way now you look like you have a chance with this new potential of having the best g5 team being able to go play for a national championship you know and so i think it's opened the doors for that i'm, I'm I would be interested to see that people that are smarter than me put their heads together and said, hey, we can make this happen. Let's see if we can do it this way. Uh, I think that'd be a huge benefit. So ultimately, though, you do end up playing Liberty in my neck of the woods here in Orlando in the Cure Bowl. And it's a long story, and I don't want to have to explain this to you, but this is essentially the number one Malik Willis podcast in existence. Um, and, and I don't really have a question for you. I just want you to tell the world how great Malik is as someone who had the unfortunate you know, task of trying to stop that guy. I, I would say this. Uh, if he's not there, we beat them two touchdowns. And I think if you watch that game, you'd agree. Uh, he was that good. Uh, he's that, he was that special. 
uh, you know, very talented. Obviously, he can throw the ball, but he's just so hard to tackle. I mean, he's. Just, I mean, I don't know what he weighs exactly, but he looks like a linebacker, an NFL linebacker. That's what he looks like. Uh, and he was tough to handle. I think you know we threw everything we could there to try to get him down and do all those things, and, and he made a lot of plays for them. And so, very talented guy. He really makes their team, to be honest with you. And so, um, he's he's all the accolades he's getting, and, and he, it's deserving of by the way he plays. So with the uh, the twelve team playoff, and I know you're just you're hinting at that, and, I, and I'm sure you know this. I'm sure you've already seen this, but if it were in place in 2020, of course, instead of playing against Liberty in the Cure Bowl, Coastal Carolina would have gotten that last spot in the playoff, and there's no doubt in my mind that the public would have been pulling really, really hard for your team at Notre Dame. Have you thought about taking a page out of UCF's playbook and maybe claiming a playoff berth for 2020? Well, you know, that's not crossed our mind. Uh, I think that's probably a one-time thing. You know, that, that worked that one time, and I think people had enough fun with it. I don't know if anybody would ever do that again. But, uh, you know, how, how crazy is it that you go into a year where you, nobody even knows you're playing and then I believe that because of the season we had, we were sort of the catalyst. There, it was beforehand, but I think we were we were the final straw that said, "Hey, we got to let these G5 teams have a chance at the dance." I really believe that because of the season that we had. Obviously, Cincinnati had a great season. Liberty had all those teams, but I think because of the BYU BYU game specifically, I think that was the catalyst. Say, "Hey, we got to figure this out." Uh, because I think people were craving it, right? They wanted to see, "Hey, can this underdog go against somebody?" Uh, and how cool would that be if the if the if the uh, the Shauna clears the mullets you know took down the Mormons and then we had to try to take down the Catholics two weeks later that'd have been pretty cool so uh, that that's a that's a pretty awesome story and and hopefully hopefully that's something that ourselves can experience or at least other G5 teams now get the chance to experience and we'll be able to look back in 2020 and say hey I, we you know we were a big part of the reason why. Gosh, you just bringing that up makes me realize that mullets versus Mormons did not get enough billing going into it. 48 hours is just not enough to be able to sell t-shirts and be able to generate hype. We need to kind of redo, we need to be able to do a redo of that game. And I know Notre Dame, that took it, would have obviously sold itself. So along those, those same lines, I'm guessing then you're a supporter of the 12-team playoff, the, the proposed system. What was your initial reaction when you saw that? Well, the main thing, I'm a supporter of giving an opportunity for teams that really never get it, the opportunity to experience and play for a national championship. And no matter what any of us says, no matter how great a season, um, you know, a G5 team, it was, it's almost impossible, right? It, it was almost impossible. And now with them expanding to that, at least that gives you the opportunity, maybe, maybe for two teams. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure it might only be one. But at least it gives you opportunity. You know, if you go out and handle your business, you got a great shot of being in there and having a chance to play in a big bowl game and and, and having a chance to knock off a uh, you know a traditionally great team and, and keep marching to try to win a championship. Uh, and that's a special thing. And, and a lot of times that's why some we don't you know when I say we talking as far as the, the our level non power five or however you want to say it. Um, our level sometimes does not get the respect it deserves. We play really good football, and I think that was shown last year, but we don't get that respect probably nationally. And I think this will give us an opportunity. Now we got to go in there, whoever it is, and they got to try to win one. They can't get blown out, except because most people are going to say, oh, they're going to get blown out, right? That's what most people are going to say. But, you know, you look at the Cincinnati-Georgia game last year, that was a good football game, you know, and, and really Cincinnati played them well, you know, and, and – uh, the thing is, is you know, is an Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, are they, they, are they probably going to win the thing anyway? Probably, because they've just got the better players, etc. Right, most. But you never know. One game, you never know. If something happens, right? And so I think people want to see that opportunity. So I'm for that. That gives us more access, uh, and hopefully, it's not where there's two of us that are deserving. Well, but yeah, but we need more money, and the, and the SEC needs more money. You know, so we got to put one of them in. I hope that's not what it. I hope it's really the 12 best teams, or however they shake it down. And if there's two group of fives like us, Cincinnati and, and Coastal last year, then we both should get in, and that's that's a fair thing. Is there a number of teams that you've always kind of had in mind for for the playoff? Is was there maybe hopes for eight, sixteen? Was there just anything that that you've kind of 
you, maybe you discussed with athletic directors and said this would be the, the ideal number for us to be able to get to? You know, I think what makes it challenging with the ideal number is the, the conference championship games, right? So I, I started in I started yeah. in Division Two and in FCS. FCS, when I first started, was 16. Then it went to 24. Uh, when I was at uh, when I was at FC or D two, I believe it was twenty four. Might have been sixteen. I think it was twenty four. And so I've been a part of playoff systems that work, but you don't have that extra championship game, right? And so I think I think the number, the higher you go uh, with teams, um, the more obviously games you play. And I'm sure there's how many games is enough, right? How many games is enough, or too many, I should say, not necessarily enough. And then um, you know, what's what's too many where it might get watered down where certain teams probably don't deserve to get in based off their season. Because you want the regular season to matter, right? You want it to matter and it means something. And so, uh, you know, with 8 to 12, my big whole argument was make sure it's just not one group of five that has a chance to get in, that you have two. That if there's two teams worthy, there's two teams that they take care of business that would have the opportunity to get in. And that was probably never going to happen in eight. And so, you know, you felt like 12 was probably a good number. At least that gives you – I don't know how many would ever get in out of 12, but at least it gives the opportunity because, um, you know, there's good football at this level. Just like there's good football when I was at Division Two. there's good football at FCS. And you want to be rewarded for great seasons. Uh, and not re- you don't want people rewarded for, you know, average seasons just because they're in a perceived better conference. Switching gears a bit, you grew up baling hay, shucking corn uh, in Carryville, about 30 miles down the road from Knoxville. And so obviously that meant you were a diehard Tennessee fan growing up. Um, I know you used to go to games with your father. Your son's middle name is, is Heath after the great Heath Schuler. Uh, my question is, how did a 21-year-old Jamie Chadwell celebrate the title in 98? Well, you know what? Uh, once you... Once you start playing, I was obviously playing during that time. I was at East Tennessee State. And so uh, I was excited about them winning. It was a cool thing. But once you're playing on your own level and you're investing in your own team, doesn't mean you don't care about the team. You don't still root for the team you did growing up. But you're not as emotionally invested, right? And so uh, at that point in time, I wasn't as emotionally invested in them as much as I was the team I was playing with and uh, and worry about now it was awesome for our state it was obviously awesome because of the history that i knew of tennessee and and uh you know what it was about but i don't think it was anything out of the ordinary i wasn't crying or anything like that if we'll say that you know just because of because you invest so much into your to your own, own with what your own doing whether that's coaching or whatever with your own team uh you probably you, i'm not saying you don't you know, have those emotions but you probably suppress them a little bit more just because of what you're doing but i do remember where i was at and i remember what my what my you know my 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 family was doing i remember what my grandfather who was a diehard fan he was the one that really got me into it uh you know i remember those things and so it was it was a cool moment long time ago though long time ago Uh, I mean, I think Tennessee fans will will agree with you on that, and they like to think of simpler times, at least in the in the 20th century. For for you, you know, playing at East Tennessee State, like you mentioned there, from '95 to '99, did you want to play at, at Tennessee? Were, were you the kid who grew up thinking that you were going to be the next good quarterback at, at Tennessee? But then, you know, maybe Peyton being a year ahead of you, you're like, I don't even want to have that in the back of my mind like how did that whole dynamic work out for you in high school oh of course I, I wanted to run out of the tea so bad that was like my that was uh that's when i learned i needed to be more specific in my prayer life i, I pray hey god please let me run out of the tea i should have told him it was with the university of tennessee and not somebody else but uh I, you know what i got i got pretty realistic knowing you know i thought i was a pretty good quarterback in high school but then then you know you know, and, and mentioned Heath Schuler, but then you, you know, they're signing Brandon Sturt and they're signing Peyton Manning, and you start realizing, hey, I'm nothing like those guys. And so I started realizing pretty soon that, hey, I'm not on that level, vice versa. You know, I, I mean, I had a pretty decent. That mean I didn't want to play, and I would have died. You know, if they'd have said it, I'd jumped on it, obviously. Um, you know, and and uh, but also I really wanted to play and have the opportunity to go somewhere and have a chance to compete, et cetera. And, uh, and you know, and they didn't think I was good enough, and rightfully so. I wasn't. 
I thought I was, but they, you know, they're, they're a lot, obviously a lot smarter than me at that time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I would have loved to do that, you know, because you, I mean, again, I, I, I felt, I mean, I, I followed him a lot, and then when Heath Schuler got there, and I was a quarterback, I was an eighth grader going into ninth grade. I mean, that was just like blew my mind. Like he was somebody like, hey, I want to be like him, and so everything I was doing was to try to, you know, replicate what he was and try to be like him. And he was my hero at that time. And so I would have died to wear, you know, orange over there at that time frame. But then as you go through it, you start realizing, hey, um, you know, their guys, I'm not as good as their guys, but, I, hey, I'm good enough to go to this level and try to compete. So you, I would say you lose out on that dream, but you say, hey, you know what, that wasn't meant to be. And that's okay. Did you ever get a, a chance? Did you ever uh, get a chance to meet Heath? Because you got the ultimate icebreaker. Hey, look, my son's middle name is, is literally Heath after you. I grew up watching you. Yeah, well, what's crazy? I met him. I met him on. Um, I met him on a uh, after he declared early. Uh, he was over there working out. I met him one time. He declared to go to the pro, and I was over there for something. I don't know. Maybe it was a camp or something. I met him. And then I was over there on a, in a, as a junior in high school, I was over there on a visit for a game, and his girlfriend at the time was actually the, one of the football hosts, and she ate lunch with me, and he came up and said hi to her, so I couldn't talk. I was like, a, I was like a, you know, somebody seeing a movie star. I was just sitting there flustered. So I met him twice. We actually recruited his son a little bit here uh, a couple years ago, two years ago, I guess. We recruited his son, but never really had a chance to interact with him. His son made an early decision, so... I met him a couple of times. He would not know that. He would not remember that. Obviously, I do, and I've got it imprinted in my brain. But uh, never had the chance to actually meet him beyond now. As a, I get, you know, as an adult more so. Uh, and I'd probably still be a fanboy to tell you the truth. <laughs> I was gonna say, if you're going over to his son's house, that's one of those things that you say to your assistants. Yeah, you know, we just gotta recruit this kid. I just gotta go to Heath Schuler's house, and I gotta. <laughs> I got to sit in his living room and I got to give the, the speech. You know, it's just what are the things I got to do with this yeah, job? Exactly. I, I told the guys, hey, I'm home visiting this one if he lets us. I'm, I'm there. So, but it never worked out. <laughs> uh, I know you're, you're happy at Coastal and I, I'm not going to do the thing where I ask you, hey, how close were you to leaving for another job? So I'll instead ask this. When the Tennessee job opened up, how disappointed were all of your childhood buddies when they texted you asking if you were going to get the job only to have you respond being like, hey, I, I love it here at Coastal. Well, I, I'm sure I'm sure that would have been awesome. Obviously, there was never, uh, you know, a real opportunity to have that job. I think my guys probably didn't. They, they you know, they wanted it. Uh, and I'm sure, uh, you know, just because how cool was that? Hey, I went to high school. With, I went to high school. went to middle school or elementary school with the head coach of Tennessee. That's a cool thing. You know, and I'm sure they would. that would have been cool for them. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where, the thing I have learned now coaching is, uh, you know, you have that when you start coaching. And I think everybody has that dream. Hey, I want to be, I want to get to the power five, highest level, blah, 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 experience this or that. And we all do. But also, as you, the longer you're in it now, you know, you realize it's about being at the right fit, the right time, and the right place for you. And, uh, and so I've really tried to, you know, make sure that I focus on those things more so and, and enjoy where you're at. And so I always trying to worry about what's next. And, I'm a big believer if you plant roots where you're at, it'll, it'll blossom. And, and, uh, and so really any, any job that I've had, I've really tried to do those things and not look, you know, necessarily look forward towards the next one. But there was some, I'm, there was some disappointed people in that, but that's, uh, that's how life goes sometimes. You, you got a unique opportunity here to, to run it back with this 2021 team and, and build on what you guys did last year. And, you know, you, you had a bunch of seniors really take advantage of this extra year of eligibility. You can come clean with me, though. D did you make a bet with those guys that if you guys do something like, I don't know, top 10 finish, get to a New Year's Six Bowl, whatever it is, that if that happens, you will rock the mullet? And then if not, what do we need to do in order to make that happen? So I did, and I should have probably had more faith in them. So I said, hey, we win this championship. We win the Sunbelt. I'll grow a mullet. And so um, the flow's going pretty well right now. It's got a good look to it. It's not complete, but uh, I've been growing it ever since the end of the season, uh, and uh, it, it's looking pretty good. So it's, uh, I've got, I'm, all, uh, I'm all business in the front, but I'm partying in the back. 
wait a minute, you're showing up week one rocking full mullet. Like this is this is happening. You're not gonna are, are, wait. So if you have the visor too, then how does that work? Does I've I don't know if I've ever seen the mullet visor combination. Are you well, fully on board for that? Have you practiced wearing the visor? Like how does that all work? Well, I'm trying to talk them out of letting me like just let me cut it before the new season starts. You know because it's a new season. So uh, I'm trying to, you know, say, hey, I've wore it long enough. I'm hoping they'll let me cut it. But if they tell me no, i got to be a man of my word, and I'll have to rock it for a little while. So, uh, but right now it's growing, and I'm not cut it. Uh, I have started asking them, hey, guys, can I cut it before the new season? Uh, because my wife really doesn't like it, and it'd be nice to, you know, her to start talking to me again. <laughs> so, but uh, they're, they're pretty tough on me right now. I don't know. Mike Gundy pulled it off for for a bit. I think he still kind of has that look. If you could, if you could continue to be the the mullet guy at, at at Coastal, I think that that totally totally changes things for you. Um, wow, did not realize that. Wish I would have known that before I asked that question. But um, you've been so gracious with your time. I want to get you out of here with five rapid fire questions. It can be the first thing that comes to mind, or if you've got a 10 minute story, uh, that, that works totally fine too. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Awesome. How, how much has the Chick-fil-A sauce shortage impacted your life? Oh, it's killer. I mean, like I love their Chick-fil-A and Polynesian sauce. And when you go there and you can't get what you need, I mean, it's just so devastating. And I'll tell you what else is devastating about Chick-fil-A, at least down here. None of them are opening back up. It's all drive through. So it kills you on the refills for tea. And I mean, it, just, it just crushes you. That's the most Southern thing I think I've ever, that I've ever heard on this podcast. It kills you on refills for tea. That is so great. Um, the Okay, best quarterback that your team has ever faced. And please just, you could end the conversation if it's Malik Willis. <laughs> best quarterback our team's ever faced. Um, oh, I want to say, uh, I mean, he's up there. Um, I want to say, I'm pretty sure this was the, the quarterback. Then I'm going to say Aaron Murray was at Georgia in 2014. I think I'm right on that. Check me on that, but I'm pretty I think, sure. I think it was Aaron Murray. So Murray, Murray graduated. I, I, I hate to call it. I, Murray graduated 2013, right? 13? So okay. Then it wasn't him then. Then it wasn't him. Then I'm going to have to say, I was trying to think, because we played Alabama, we played Georgia. Um, Zach Wilson. Zach Wilson. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's a really good answer. And you guys did a phenomenal job uh, being able to, to cover him as well. Uh, best quick fix for targeting? Oh, gosh. Um. Quick fix for targeting. Can I come back to that? That's a good. That's a good answer question there. I don't know that. That's a, I'm not thought about that one. Um, you know what? On it, they've. Uh, I mean, I think we're making progress now. Uh, I wish, I wish on a targeting because we play so few games that they only had to sit out. Uh, they only had to sit out maybe like a quarter, or something where they could come back in because I think most people nowadays understand. We're trying to protect each other. So you see it very rarely, and when and when you do see it, it's such a bang bang. Maybe maybe instead of sitting out a half of the next game or the or the second half, it's just like a quarter. When even the offensive minded guys are are saying that, that's probably a sign that there's something wrong with the rule. I think at this point. Um, let's go with who's the who's the coach that you look up to the most. That's a great question. Um, I'll tell you, I, I really I like what uh, the way I like the way Coach Sweeney runs his program. I like the way um, guy's name just slipped my mind. Indiana. Um, I just Tom name? Allen. Yeah. Tom Allen. I like how Tom Allen runs his program, and I, and I think the reason why is those guys, you know, came from sort of under the radar, and not a lot of people saying about them and they ran their program and built it in a way that represented who they are. And I think it showed you, you can win different ways, right? You can have successful programs doing things different ways than majority of people do. Uh, and, and I like how they do that and, and how they, they stand for what they believe in. Uh, and they've not changed, even though maybe there's pressure to do things a certain way. And so 
obviously Coach Savings. I mean, there's some great people you can learn from, but those two stick out for me because I think uh, I have, you know, similar beliefs uh, in the way they try to run their program, and I try to model some things after that. Last question for you. Um, the ability to become a visor guy, what's the, the, the biggest thing that I need to learn about that? Because I'd like to become a visor guy, but I, I don't know that I have the physical makeup for it. Well, here's the thing with the visor. The great thing about the visor, it just says, hey, you know what? I'm not going bald. I've got hair, and I'm going to show it off. I think most mm -hmm. people, when they start wearing hats, it's because they know eventually they're going bald. I'm wearing a visor showing you I've got a full I've got a full head of hair and I'm proud of it. It don't matter no, normally what you look physically wise. Obviously, most people with a visor they try to get some type of tan and stuff like that, which it helps. You're in Florida, you probably tanned up, so you probably got that going. It's just but you're saying, hey, I'm proud of my hair, and I'm proud of what it looks like. I, I wish I was tan. I wish I was tan, and I wish I could uh, pull off the visor and the mullets. Gosh, what a look that's going to be. Cannot wait to see what's ahead for you this year. Um, really, really excited. It was so fun to be able to watch your team last year. This has been an absolute blast. Really, really appreciate the time. Good luck with everything you got going on this year. Uh, I appreciate you. Thank you. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're gonna get. I wanted to do the subject of haircuts for figuring it out because while I realize this isn't necessarily something that adults go through significant changes with, um, I'm actually kind of a, a different case with that. I went to the barbershop a handful of times in my life before I became an adult. That's it. I wasn't one of those people who never got a haircut. I was the opposite of that. I was the buzz cut kid. My mom had the clippers once a month, boom. When I got older, a couple of my buddies used to come over and they'd also get their haircut just pretty cut and dry, you know, put on the, the two, the three, whatever it was, and easy haircut. But then I graduated from college and I had the realization that I have a full head of hair, about to go into the workforce. Should probably grow it out a little bit, get a real haircut. Lauren might have also had an influence on that as well. So originally, I was a big Supercuts guy. Then, you know, kind of look around and realize, do I need to be doing this? Just had a few too many bad haircut experiences here in Orlando. And if you have a good Supercuts by you, not trying to trash the entire brand, whatever, um, but just the one that I was going to, which is actually now closed, ironically enough, um, just had a few bad experiences. I get what I think is a pretty basic haircut. I get a one on the sides and then I get it, usually I get it blended into the top and then like maybe a scissor, like scissors take off roughly half an inch off the top, nothing crazy, but they messed up the, the blending too many times with that. And I hated, hated going back there and being like, can you fix this please? That is the most awkward thing. Sometimes I come home and I would look in the mirror and just wonder how in the world did I not see that? Or how did they not see that? Or I would see it and I, instead of just wanting to avoid a potential conflict or awkward situation, I would just tell them, yep, it's fine, everything is good. Anyway, didn't like having to do that at Supercuts. It felt like whenever I explained what I wanted, they would look at me like I was asking them for the most complicated Thing in the world and again pretty basic cut that I would get so anyway decided to go to a real barber shop they have a bunch of Floyd's down here in Orlando and I went there for about two years and loved it I'd go once a month and didn't matter which stylus I had felt comfortable with with all of them didn't have to request any of that stuff ahead of time and then two months ago I called for a reservation and they're closed I was legit sad for a minute I hope all those people who work there get jobs elsewhere, all that stuff. Obviously, hope the best for them. But I, I really liked going there. And I also, for those who are listening to this who have experienced this, I don't want to go to a new place. Looking for a new haircut place is not easy. I don't want to say it's like a parent looking for a new babysitter. That's too extreme, not going that far. But I don't know. I, I was definitely more cautious than if I had to find a new movie theater or something like that. And part of that was because I had to do this search right before my brother's wedding. Photos last forever. Don't forget that, people. 
Luckily though, first place I called was a um, local place called Lady Jane's. I think they're local, maybe semi-local. I don't know. They've got a bunch of Florida memorabilia and stuff in, in the actual barbershop itself. And I realize the name kind of sounds bad, but trust me, it's not. But they have taken care of me both times that I've been there. So I felt so good after my first cut with Anika. Shout out to her. Obviously, huge SEC football fan. I'm sure she's listening to this. The second time I went back and got my hair cut there, I asked for a beard trim for the first time in my life. Let me just say, all the guys out there listening to this, if you've never done a beard trim before, do it one time. I think it's like, it's pretty cheap too. It was something like 10 bucks where I went and maybe it's a little bit more. Check with that beforehand, know what you're getting into. But let me tell you, that is as pampered as I felt in in a good solid minute there. Um, they do the hot towel on your forehead. Uh, you know, it's over your eyes during the beard trim, which basically put me to sleep. And I, I thought it was fantastic. It's not gonna be an every cut type of thing for me, but I thought the experience was excellent. And they get you lined up, they can customize and, and blend it exactly the way that you want it. And I essentially just took a 20 minute nap instead of coming home and having to do all that stuff myself. And might I add, they also did it better. So let's take to the Facebook group, haircuts, specifically as an adult. Do you enjoy them? Do you avoid them? How much is too much to spend on a haircut? Maybe a haircut horror story, something like that as well. Matthew Sadro says, I put off haircuts until the last possible moment because I have one stylist that I've been going to since high school. So I get probably two haircuts per year, which means my range of hairstyles varies from Catholic schoolboy to frizzy mop, depending on the time of year. If you're one of those people that can survive months without a haircut, I am so jealous of you because I hit the two to three week mark and my neck needs it probably more than anything else where you just need that, that cleaned up look on the back of your neck and if you don't trust somebody else to do that or somebody else doesn't want to be put in that spot, you're pretty much forced to go and get a haircut. The people that I was jealous of in school back in the day where they would, they would be like Matthew once every four or five months and you, and you knew when those people got a haircut and they could grow it out longer and they could look fine. They could have the, the shorter look and they'd be perfectly fine. And it just never, didn't ever really look like they were overdue. That's, that's a great trait to be able to have. And it's a sign that your hair is still probably growing out, I think, because if you have thinning hair, you always want to maybe correct it a little bit and you're probably getting it shaved or something like that. Or maybe, maybe you are growing it out and you want to cover up some of the receding hairline. I don't know. But Matthew, that's a nice thing to be able to have. I personally couldn't do that. Probably even if I had the cleaned up neck, I would still struggle to go longer than six, seven weeks at the very, very most. That's what I did peak pandemic time. I also, during the pandemic, had Lauren cut my hair once. And with the advice, the FaceTime advice of her sister, who is a, a stylist for a living, that's what she does, it took like two hours, I think, but Lauren actually did a pretty good job and there was no big issues with it at all. I was very impressed, I was surprised. I was getting ready to have to shave my head. Did not have to do that. Michael Dark, he says, my dad is a hairdresser, so for the first 19 years of my life, I never had to pay for a haircut. So I didn't have any idea about how much haircuts cost until I moved to Georgia. Since I'm losing my hair, I go as cheap as I can for a fade. Since I just moved four hours away from my old place, I'm not looking forward to finding a new guy. Guy or girl, whatever, whatever you gotta do. When you are not forced to go to the barbershop, I didn't realize this as a kid, but the money it saves you is significant. I just, in preparation for this, did the breakdown of how much money my mom probably saved by giving me and my brother both haircuts. And even if it was just 25 bucks once a month, and let's say for 12 years even, that's conservative. So ages five to 17 when she started doing the bus cuts, I think maybe I was six, I don't know. 
$3,600. That's, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. $3,600 per kid. Seven grand if you got two kids. That's a car. All right. That, that is a lot of money to save if you're able to get away with it. Now, I have since looked back on some of those photos and I really appreciate the fact that my mom was able to give me a haircut, but with all due respect to her, and she did her best, not criticizing, there's a significant difference. There is a, a definite drop off if you have the parent who is willing to cut your hair as opposed to the actual stylist hairdresser, which it sounds like Michael has. And Michael, if, you, if your dad was, was really good at that, that is a major cost-effective way to get that done and being able to have that kind of at your disposal. Major, major luxury. Big ups to you for being able to do that. Emery Picker. After being in the military for six years and getting out right before COVID hit, um, the the stylist I had been seeing uh, the stylist I had seen for two years moved. Um, I haven't gotten a haircut in over a year. Wow, last time I saw Emery, he I had short hair, very short hair. Uh, I love the long hair now. He says Kelsey, his wife, hates it because she is jealous of my long, curly, thick, luscious locks. Before that, I went to the same girl for two years and wouldn't let anyone else touch my hair because she always did it perfectly. Emery hits on something that I wanted to bring up here. If you find that person, stick with it. I have not found that person really until going to Lady Jane's because having to explain your haircut over every single time is one of those frustrating things that I, I don't really like doing because I, I always feel like I leave something out or the, the stylist will have to ask me questions about that. I don't know if I'm just lazy. Sometimes I just don't want to answer that. I just want the, the, the I want whatever stylist to recognize me when I walk in the door and know exactly what I want. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Emery growing out his hair, I saw pictures of this because right when he said this, I had to look up what he looked like with the, the long flowing hair. He's not wrong when he says he's got the, the long, curly, thick, luscious locks. That's you know pretty high praise to give yourself about your hair, but dude's not wrong. If you have the versatility to be able to grow out your hair at a time like now, I say to take full advantage of it. And at the same time, if you like that feeling of getting that fresh cut and you know you have a go-to person that isn't gonna mess it up and you have that confidence with them, that is just such a blessing. You can relax the entire time. That's the other thing I like about getting a haircut is when I feel like the conversation that I have with whatever stylist isn't forced, you have a little bit of a rapport. The stylist who wants to talk to me the entire time ends up kind of annoying me. And as I've said in the past about how I feel about people talking to me while I'm at the gym, I don't prefer it. But if I'm in a talkative mood and the person recognizes that, then I have no problem going back and forth. There was a stylist that I used to have back when I went to Floyd's who I, I would shoot the breeze with about Nebraska football because she used to live in Nebraska, ironically enough. And we would sometimes talk about that or you know, uh, just the area itself, Omaha, Lincoln, all those things. You can find that stylist that you feel like you can have that good give and take with conversationally speaking as well. That's also a nice bonus on top of the whole, hey, you want to be able to make sure that your hair doesn't look like a complete and total disaster when you get home. Speaking of complete and total disaster haircuts, Drew Page. In high school, I tried to grow my hair out and it basically turned into a mullet. Ah, Jamie Chadwell approves. In college, I had my friends cut my hair one day, because we were stupid, he says, and they messed it up so bad we had to shave my head bald, and I had a big media event coming up that I was working because I was getting my bachelor's in broadcasting. Now that I'm an adult and I finally figured out how my hair is supposed to look and how to make it look okay, um, I, I did include a picture of me at the event after they shaved me bald so I wouldn't leave y'all hanging. It's, I've seen worse. I'll say this about Drew. Drew, I, I don't think this is 100% your best look, but at least you were willing to grow out the beard as well. 
if you had been the guy who all of a sudden showed up with a shaved head, no beard, you'd have some questions to answer probably, but that's such a mainstream look now to have the, the shaved head with the beard. And that's you have to be willing to, to try that out. And he's, in this picture, he's not totally skinhead bald. I, I don't know what the, the right way to phrase that is, but he at least has a little bit going on top there. If you do have that bad cut, and I've never been in this situation where I've been forced to pivot quite like that, but if you do have to pivot, I think you have to try and grow out the beard somewhat. And maybe even if your beard is a little bit patchy and kind of distract you from the fact that you have this very unique, all of a sudden very bare head. But I'm very thankful that I never asked my buddies in college to shave my head so that they could inevitably mess it up in a very, very gruesome way. But that's always the panic. If you have to go be out in public with a bad haircut and you wonder, am I better off just shaving this bald? I always thought I was gonna be shave the head guy forever growing up. And not because of bad haircuts or anything, just because I liked how low maintenance it was. And I, I thought I'd be able to rock that look professionally. At least when I was in high school, I thought that would be okay. And not that there's anything wrong with that. And if you're losing your hair or something like that, I, I always say, shave your head before going with a comb over or anything like that. I don't know what you're trying to trying to prove by doing that, but I always thought I was gonna be that guy. And one day you realize that if you actually get a stylist who can cut your hair the right way, and as Drew says, make your hair look the way that it's supposed to, more power to you. Tanner Stars, he says, I did change my haircut as an adult, especially when I progressed in my career. My hair was thinning, not even bad enough for a comb over, but I took a razor to my cranium and I'm never going back. Only downfall is unruly eyebrow hair since I no longer go to a barber, but I manage. That's one thing you should tell your stylist too, if you can do the eyebrows as well. Trim those up, my eyebrows go out a lot actually. I have lighter hair though. Definitely do that if you can. Tanner, I know you're not alone dealing with this. The thinning hair issue that so many experience maybe early on in life. One of my best buddies, Anthony Glorioso. Poor guy, poor guy. I think he first recognized it was going at age 17, 17 or 18. It was definitely our senior year in high school. And this guy, Glorioso couldn't grow out anywhere close to a full beard at that point. And if you're losing your hair before you can grow out the full beard, as I've said on this podcast before, man, I, I feel bad for you. I do. Because that, that just feels like the hair gods are working against you. But if you lean into it, like my buddy Glorioso has done, you can very much make that your look. And there are a lot of people who I just think look, look better bald. I think Glorioso probably looks better bald. I think Michael Jordan looks better bald. Certain people embrace that, and I think that they they own it in a way in which it doesn't look like they messed up a haircut or they're the obvious, my, my hair was thinning and I had to do this type of person. Just own it and, uh, and just roll with it. We'll end with this one from Kobe Black. He says, I used to have really curly slash wavy hair growing up. As I got older, my hair started thinning and I just couldn't be comfortable with paying around 20 bucks for a two minute haircut. So I just started shaving my own and haven't gotten a bad haircut since. P.S. Growing up in the 90s, I think we can all thank Andre Agassi for making the hot bald guy thing a trend. When you bring up Andre Agassi's hair, Agassi, Agassi, I say Agassi, I don't know. I always think of the, the mullet with the rat tail look that he was rocking for a bit there. Was that a wig? It might have been a wig. I don't know. This is one where I wish Will could back me up on this because he might have an answer to, to this all-important question about a great 90s hairstyle. He did make it popular. That is 100% true. And I think now more than ever, the bald look is perfectly fine. I look at the people who try and still do the comb over the George Costanza look and just wonder why. Just just why, what are you holding on to? If you got the horseshoe look, 
I don't know, maybe it makes you feel more comfortable and you're more self-confident. And if that's the case, I don't want to sit here and bash you, but just just lean into it. Just lean into it. And you'll you'll save on haircuts if you're able to to actually pull that off. Kobe, if you can do the math and let us know how much you're gonna save on haircuts, that's a number that at least I personally would like to know. 20 bucks for a two-minute cut. That is not efficient. <laughs> that is not efficient at all, man. I, I sometimes will see the, the, the guys who come into the barber shop and you can tell it's gonna be one of those two, two to five minute cuts. And they know that they don't have a whole lot to be able to work with and play, play with just in terms of the way that it lines up. And I, I think that that's a, definitely a point in life where you'd probably have to say, it's time to get the clippers, it's time to be able to, to take care of this myself. How much is too much to spend on a haircut? That's a question that I've thought about a little bit myself and going to a new place where you're kind of doing some of the price breakdowns and all that. I won't spend more than, I don't know, if you're spending more than $30 and going once a month, that can be a little bit pricey. Now, when you add the beard trim and stuff like that, it gets, it's definitely going to get north of $30 and you factor in tip and all those different things, but I don't know. I always think about the Ryan Howard thing where Ryan Howard on that, that episode of The Office is like, guess how much this haircut costs? It's like, oh, you really need to spend over $200 on a haircut? I don't think you do. I think if you find the, the stylist that's right for you, then just kind of roll with that and don't, don't assume that you need to spend a certain amount. But at the same time, maybe you can justify spending 70 bucks, something like that. If you're a Matthew Sadro and only getting a cut twice a year, that's a little bit of a different story than spending what's an average of, you know, if you're spending 30 bucks once a month, that breaks down to a dollar a day. I think there's probably got to be a limit. Don't, don't spend $100 on a haircut if you're, especially if you're a guy. Not to be sexist or anything, but that seems unnecessary. Kind of need to assess your priorities if that's what we're doing here. Even Will, who gets... Will used to get all the fresh cuts, and I think he was like Emery and went a year without getting a haircut during the pandemic, and he really grew it out for a bit. I don't think Will, even at his most expensive, is, is flirting with a $100 cut. Probably not worth it at that point. All right, thank you for everyone who submitted an answer to figuring it out. Big show coming up next week as well. Got a current SEC quarterback coming up next week. He is one of the few no-doubter starters in this league. So there's kind of your, your hint if you want to guess who's coming up. If you have not, or if you want to do so again, leave us a five-star review. Like, subscribe. Go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Put your email address in there. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored wherever you get your podcast. Join the Facebook group and hear your name read on air with figuring it out. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.